Welcome back to the FreightWave Fuel Supply Summit. I'm FreightWave's editor-at-large, John Kingston. You've heard a lot of talk today, and you'll hear more talk over the course of the day about very specific developments that affect what you're paying for diesel as a consumer, as well as you've been hearing a lot about the ways in which you buy that diesel. You've heard a lot about environmental regulations and how they impact the price and supply of diesel. But ultimately, the biggest factor that's setting the price of diesel fuel is going to be the global oil market, that big bazaar of about 100 million barrels a day of petroleum from dozens and dozens of exporters uh, to send out to every corner of the globe. And I've known Stephen Jones, who's the Senior Vice President of Oil Market Strategies for Petroleum Argus for many years. And we couldn't think of a better person to share his views on where that market might be going with those of us here on the FreightWave Fuel Buyer Summit. So, Steve, welcome. Thank you, John. Good to see you again. So uh, I know all about Petroleum Argus, but why don't you fill uh, our listeners in? Well, Argus Media is actually a price reporting agency. Basically, we assess what the prices are of all the physical barrels and gallons being traded in the market around the world. And uh, we do a lot of market research, news reporting, editorial work, things of that nature. And my part of the business is covering the oil market strategies, which is basically looking at uh, all the fundamental developments in the market that are affecting liquid fuels, both crude and refined products, and uh, even getting into the foreboding energy transition and what that means for the future of uh, petroleum balance requirements. So uh, prompt market's been pretty interesting lately after we've seen a, a range of storms passing through the Gulf Coast and a whole host of other factors that are affecting the very prompt market. But I'm looking forward to our discussion here, John. So let's recap quickly, briefly, what crude oil has done, because that's the main marker. Of course, at the depths of the pandemic, it actually turned negative for, for a day. But generally, I would say the bottom of the market, throwing out that one day, which was kind of extraordinary, was more down toward $20 a barrel. And it's risen you know, pretty steadily since then. We're right now back to about $70 a barrel. It hit 70, then it went down a little bit and back up to 70. So I just wanted to, you know, for the purpose of our listeners, talk about where that, that barrel is. And, and you know, when I, when I look at when I look at the oil market, I think to me the biggest story right now is the drought of investment that has been going into this uh, into this industry for for several years now, and the fact that even at these higher prices, that investment those investment levels are not picking up substantially. When you look over the history of the oil market, you would think that that kind of a rebound in the price would bring the dollars in and the rigs would get going. That is not happening. Why isn't it happening this time? Yeah, all good questions. <clears throat> the the reason why we haven't seen the investment flowing back into the oil patches that in the U.S., you know, production was growing rapidly and all the earnings that uh, that the oil production and, and was generating was being turned back into drilling more and increasing growth as opposed to returning the cash to the investors. And so as grow, 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 expand, export, um, feed the beast, so to speak, in terms of the rising demand requirements. When COVID hit, all bets were off. And, you know, oil demand on a gold basis dropped eight, almost 9 million barrels a day in, in a very prompt period. And that's what took the, you know, the carpet out from underneath the uh, oil market. It basically plummeted, as you just described. But now, since so many investors got burned with that price drop, uh, the requirements now that the financial sector has on drilling and investment in the upstream is merely to return the cash to the shareholders as opposed to 
invest in more drilling. On top of that, we have the climate change pressure, the environmental social governance, ESG pressures that are on top of the market overall for the petroleum sector. And so many people are feeling the investor pressure uh, in, in a twofold manner. Take the money back to the shareholders and not increase drilling and manage what you drill for the environmental balance and the future carbon policies that are upon us right now. And that's not going to go away. If anything, it's going to get tighter and tighter. And uh, that is basically creating a bit of a hole that eventually will need to be backfilled. And there are a lot of people that think we'll slingshot out of this with a, a void that has to be backfilled with future drilling and additional spending. Um, our views are, based on the demand balances and the OPEC action that's taking place, OPEC's going to continue increasing. They have spare capacity that will satiate or meet the, the near-term market demand for the next year or so. And prices are likely to soften, ironically. Uh, meanwhile, investment's still going to be you know, restrained. But we are kind of setting ourselves up, potentially, as COVID gets under control eventually, uh, vaccination progress is continuing despite Delta. Uh, petroleum demands recovered from the depth of the, you know, the early 2020 period of COVID dark days. Yes, we're going through a tough time right now globally, but by the time we get to mid to end of next year, demand will begin recovering. But OPEC's still going to increase about 400,000 barrels a day per month, at least through April timeframe, and then they're planning to increase even more. And uh, so, you know, inventory levels have normalized um, to a large extent. So we're basically almost in a balanced market, but there's a lot of uncertainty still ahead. Yeah, so, so it's interesting. You, you're saying you, you think prices might soften. You seem very assured of the supply being there. Meanwhile, there are a few voices out there that are calling for a $100 barrel of crude. I, I guess you, you have no affinity for those oh. views. Well, I do, but I, I think there is the potential for, you know, look, this is not a surprise-free market. Um, you know, everyone that's projecting balances kind of look at, you know, baseline, no surprise. What are the projects? What are the plans? What's the demand based on the economy? But no one's expecting like a Hurricane Ida to take out, you know, a million plus barrels a day of production for extended period or lose refining capacity overnight things of that nature, right? So these surprises are layered on top of these base equilibrium views that many market analysts have. I do think that oil prices will eventually get back up in, into this range or higher into the future. But I do think the fundamentals into next year are all lined up to continue to add a bit of softness to the current price level. We would not be at the $70 level right now if it wasn't for these hurricanes recently. It just wouldn't be. Yeah, I mean, when I look at the latest numbers, the International Energy Agency numbers, you know, I, Steve, as you know, I used to be on TV a lot when I was with Platts, and uh, you don't get a lot of time to talk on TV, certainly not as much time as you get here on a freight wage summit. But uh, I would always look at the OPEC call versus OPEC production as a kind of real quick hit where you could talk about supply and demand. And when I look at the IEA numbers going into next year, uh, the call is, is, is higher than current production levels in every quarter through the rest of this year and every quarter next year except the second quarter. And when I look at that, I think, whoa, you know, OPEC production is below where we're going to need. But you feel fairly confident that OPEC has the capacity to put more oil on the market and meet that call. 
Yeah, there's there's like three legs to that piece, right? Um, base OPEC, mainly Saudi in particular, uh, has been coordinating continued increases and they're meeting monthly and confirming their plans to increase 400,000 barrels a day incrementally every month all the way through April. And they've been, how should I say, very judicious in stewarding that obligation or their self-imposed commitment uh, to increase production. And that's what softened prices before the hurricanes hit, uh, the continued increase. But there's also been the Iranian uh, production potential coming back online, Iraqi production coming back online. And that's adding to uh, additional, how should I say, conservative views for where prices could end up in the near term. Uh, and we also are accounting for the fact that uh, seasonally demands come off. And, uh, you know, driving season in the U.S. is off. Um, you know, the activity and travel is easing. Lockdowns have increased due to Delta variant. So on the demand side, while OPEC is increasing, demand continues to, to see a, a bit of a roller coaster. But the expectations are for a, a conservative increase of global demand next year of about three plus million barrels a day increase on top of this year's five what, five and a quarter, five and a quarter million barrels a day. Uh, so we're not quite back to, even by the end of next year, how much total demand was lost in the year 2020 alone. Uh, so we're just now getting back to equilibrium. And inventories around the world have finally, just recently, reached you know a historical average range in the developing, in the developed economies, you know, the mature markets, the stocks that are easily readable. Uh, so inventory levels are now normal. And so it's really the, the clock's been reset, if you will. Right. So we're starting at this point forward uh, what the supply versus demand foretells for price pressure or price softness. You talk a lot here about OPEC. And of course, though, the market has uh, been dealing with or ha had to accept really kind of a new structure, which is OPEC plus. And it is the members of OPEC plus a group of oil exporters led by Russia. Uh, there have been in the past times when OPEC teamed up with some other oil exporters to coordinate what they're going to do. Those things never last. Uh, the OPEC plus group has kind of had some staying power here. And that group has held together now for, I'm not really sure how long, like two, three years. And uh, they've had a significant role in the market. So uh, when you look at the ability to put more oil on the market to, to meet the needs, are you counting on them, on the, the, the plus members uh, doing their part? Yeah, and they are. The, as a matter of fact, that's the normal horse trade that goes on when the OPEC plus group convenes. And they have a joint committee of technical market analysts that are looking at the balances and trying to figure out exactly who's going to contribute what, uh, what the total demand requirements will be for the oil. And, uh, and so, yeah, Russia and others have been participating pretty aggressively in this process. You know, at the end of the day, incremental spare capacity has to be shared in terms of how it gets distributed and used. Um, and therefore, there's common incentive for everyone to cooperate uh, to try to add price support or balance the market. If, it, if one member goes rogue and overproduces, then we'd see even more aggressive softening in the near-term balances than we currently are experiencing. You know, it's important, I think, for the OPEC Plus group, and, and they acknowledge it regularly, they're looking for price stability and a bit of, not predictability, but 
less volatility by analyzing the market promptly, and they do it every month. They convene, they go through the numbers, they confirm that the original target is still valid to add basically um, a temperament to the market so that we don't see extremism and whipsaw other stakeholders in the market that are trying to make either fuel purchase decisions, refinery run plans, uh, distribution, investments, things of that nature. So it's it's not so much the outright price that's as critical as it is just a bit of stability in the market versus wild volatility. But I would contend, you know, we just need to be careful. This is not a surprise-free market, right? Uh, we're not through hurricane season yet. Not that would it predict uh, major outages in that regard, but um, you know, there's hot spots around the world. There's all kinds of exposure on the demand side. I kind of view this as almost a recovery squared, right? Um, where we saw the original recovery post COVID with a, a major shoot back that really prompted strong prices because kind of caught the market flat footed. Uh, the impact of the vaccines, the unlocking of, um, you know, retail and dining and travel and other things, that demand really shot up aggressively. And, and the market was not quite prepared for um, how far that would go. And it kind of bid up the prompt market prices on oil. Uh, now we're in Delta variant, so we have a whole nother recovery to come. And then on top of that, everyone preparing for what the energy transition is going to foretell on longer term investment to make this sustainable. Let's let's go through something very specific that uh, deals with the, the freight waste community, and that's diesel. Uh, there have been several refinery closures in the U.S., uh, and um, some of them have been very big, like the Philadelphia Energy Refinery that uh, that was in Philadelphia, obviously. Uh, other refineries are for sale. Some of this is being replaced. Some of the lost diesel output is being replaced by renewable diesel plans. Uh, are you seeing any kind of a tightening in uh, ref refined products, including diesel, that maybe should concern uh, a, a consumer of it? Yeah, you know, the, that's a good question, John. The, the renewable volume obligation that's part of the, the uh, fuel standard requirement that the government has imposed on the market uh, requires a, a price per gallon to be paid by the refiner to the government for incremental barrels that are sold, or gallons, I should say, sold into the domestic market. This RVO number has reached record high levels because of the uncertainty about what the renewable fuel standard obligated volumes would be. And matter of fact, the EPA is still behind on releasing what those commitments to the refiners will be. And it's bid up the price significantly, upwards of 25 cents a gallon for that one component alone. So it's not just refining capacity, but it's the regulatory, call it carbon balance requirements on top of, uh, it's a compliance requirement that basically the refiners are obligated and they pass it on in the cost of the fuel. They aren't going to be able to run in a negative margin. So these incremental costs are added to the price of the diesel. Uh, yes, refinery capacity shut-ins and permanent loss of capacity are a major concern. And actually, there potentially could be exposure with this Hurricane Ida with the market pressures that people see investors around refining with the environmental requirements becoming more daunting and investor activism saying, why invest in old oil when we're all going to be driving electric cars, so to speak? Um, 
Is there money to be made in refining? Why invest tremendous capital to rebuild damaged assets when there's already a negative view around the whole refined sector in the longer term? And so we, we do know globally that we've overbuilt refining capacity near term. Europe is running at times with negative margins for gasoline, and they will sell gasoline even at a loss because they'll still run crude to make the diesel that they need in the local market. And so now we're more into an export market that's even supporting the current refinery runs we see in the U.S. If we weren't exporting gasoline and diesel, gasoline in particular to Mexico and diesel to Brazil and other uh, South American countries, without that incremental demand, our refinery runs in the U.S. would be even lower than they are. Uh, we're exporting quite a bit. Uh, so we're incrementally increasing crude production historically, and those barrels are being exported. We're running additional crude to justify the capital in the runs by exporting some of the products. Meanwhile, the domestic demand is, is carrying the burden of additional environmental costs on the price of the fuel. Very complicated picture, but simply put, uh, these, these costs need to be managed. And uh, the refining space in the Gulf Coast in particular, will still be one of the more competitive refining regions globally. Um, access to crude, waterfront for exports, economies of scale, complexity, which gives you a cost advantage as well. Um, it's, it's really a unique marketplace, but it's not without its own hazards. Let's talk about the energy transition that you, uh, you mentioned a few times. Uh, the fact is we do not need to go to, say, 100% electric vehicles or even 50% electric vehicles or pick your number, where it starts to have an impact on the margin, you know, that last barrel bought or sold, which is the one that sets the price. And, and so even if you had electric vehicles take 15% of the world fleet, you know, that's a significant impact on the need for transportation fuels. So what is your forecast? Well, we don't expect that the, the transition of electrifying the fleet, the passenger car and light-duty uh, trucks, if you will, light-duty vehicles, um, that transition and impact, even under the most aggressive turnover, meaning when a car ages out, someone needs to buy a new car, and they choose or incentivized or only have the option to buy an electric car, that whole process is going to take a decade plus. We don't expect in the developed markets with the largest car fleets like Europe and the U.S. in particular, we'll move at different paces but we won't see that peak impact on gasoline demand and global total petroleum demand until 2030, 2035 at the earliest. Uh, so we're still a decade and a half away from seeing a, a significant impact in the gasoline market from EV penetration in the mix of the makeup of the U.S. car fleet in particular. And there's many, many issues that add friction to the rate of that changeover. Um, battery costs still need to come down. But as you sell more cars, you get basically cheaper unit cost of battery production. Uh, there's still battery supply chain issues with the, the metals required in lithium and manufacturing. And right now, we're seeing you know, semiconductor availability slowing down the production of new car sales and cars available. So those type of issues slow down the fleet turnover. It'll increase the demand for new cars eventually, 
but it slows down the time frame in which they'll be delivered ultimately. So all of these issues are basically stacking up on the front end of what that U.S. vehicle fleet turnover could look like. And yeah, you know, Biden and the administration is pushing for infrastructure spending to put in, I think the last number was 7.5 some odd billion for EV infrastructure, charging stations in particular. But charging stations are very complicated uh, and it takes time to roll them out and they're very expensive. Where will they be placed and who's going to manage that process to where people will have that range anxiety and, and concerns about how they embrace the change ultimately. And there are a lot of uh, OEMs, car manufacturers that are basically betting the house on producing major numbers of EV models in deference to conventional internal combustion engines. And that's, you know, necessary if we are going to achieve as a marketplace or a regulated body uh, these aspirations to to see the electrification of the fleet. But I do think that you know the consumer in the open market is going to make these decisions. They either like it, they'll embrace it, they'll deal with the charging particulars, or they won't. And um, and I think ultimately that that adds a bit of slowness to the rate of adoption uh, on the backside. It's kind of interesting too. We're talking about this right now, and of really the the price of electricity is very much a function of the price of natural gas. And the price of natural gas is going completely berserk, far more than the price of oil. And uh, so, you know, you wonder whether this great price advantage that that electric vehicles seem to have in terms of just you know, the, the cost per mile of moving down the highway is going to start to narrow very rapidly if the price of natural gas stays at an elevated level, which I don't think it will be. But anyway, so we only have a, a minute or so here. So do you have a do you have a forecast, a specific forecast on the price of crude, let's say end of the year, a year from now? Well, I think through next year, prices will continue to soften through the end of the year, at which point in the you know fourth quarter into 2023, things will revert. We'll start to see the balance firm will have increased uh, crude production to balance the uh, demand requirements. So yeah, prices we would forecast would soften closer to the you know the low sixty dollar range, believe it or not, uh, maybe even the high fifties before it's all said and done on period averages. There's going to be you know volatility around those numbers. I think on average that's going to be where the gravitational pull on the fundamentals in the market will be. Um, you know the real wild card in all this isn't the supply side. The real wild card is how do we deal with COVID recovery, a sense of assurance that. Uh, people will feel confident to start going back to the office, start traveling, uh, get through lockdowns, uh, things of that nature. And parts of the world where that demand is heavy-handed controlled, right, managed economies, uh, China mandates and things like that, uh, that that will mean everything to the demand side in the market. But yeah, the crude prices, we would expect to soften, uh, all things even, in an unsurprised outcome from that standpoint. Well, we'll check back within you net with you next year at the 2022 Fuel Buyer Summit, uh, Freeway Fuel Buyer Summit, and we'll see how you did. Okay, Steve? Very good, John. Look forward to that. And uh, we'll talk again soon. So we want to thank Steve Jones. He's the Senior Vice President of Oil Market Strategies at Petroleum Argus for joining us here today on the Fuel Buyer Summit. We want you to stick around for more of our Fuel Buyer Summit. I'm John Kingston. Join us again.